Alexandra Kollontai was a remarkable and courageous revolutionary whose contributions to the struggle a century ago should be celebrated. She was a member of the Bolshevik Central Committee in Russia that voted for the insurrection in October 1917 that brought workers to state power. And she was a commissar or minister in the revolutionary government that came to office, the first woman to hold that status anywhere in the world. Kollontai fought for women's liberation, and as part of that fight, she wrote a pamphlet in 1909 entitled The Social Basis of the Woman Question. Reading it today, it still sparkles with relevance. Kollontai deals with the class divisions between bourgeois and working class women, but also looks at the nature of the family, the question known as free love, and the matter of marriage. So let's find out more. To introduce us to Kollontai and her pamphlet, I'm talking to Solidarity member Caitlin Doyle-Markwick. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. So, welcome, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, David. Well, first of all, can you tell us a little more about Kollontai's life and her revolutionary career? Who was she? Yeah, so Alexandra Kollontai was was herself actually born into quite a wealthy family of Ukrainian, Russian and Finnish background. She grew up between Russia and Finland and she spoke four languages fluently and a few other um, aptly. She became active in the socialist movement in Russia in the mid-1890s and she went on to become, as you said, one of the foremost Marxist theorists of, of women's oppression. She started out as a member of the Menshevik fraction of the socialists, but she later joined the Bolsheviks in 1915 on the basis of their uh, consistent opposition to the First World War. Um, Just to give some context as well, um, the so-called woman question had been discussed in radical circles for, for decades, but it wasn't until the 1905 revolution in Russia that the the women's movement was was really born in Russia. So although that revolution was unsuccessful in overthrowing the Tsar, it really shook Russian society to its core and women actually played a key role in that revolution. Despite all the huge material difficulties that were um, that they faced, they were involved in strikes and protests and so on. And, and at that time, um, things like childcare, maternity leave and, and equal pay were role, raised as crucial demands for women workers you know, which are all still familiar um, demands for us uh, fighting today. So during this period, Kollontai and other socialist women like Anissa Armand and Eva Broido played a particularly important role in arguing within the socialist movement that there needed to be special work um, done to engage and politically educate women and working-class women's issues needed to be addressed specifically because they faced a kind of, of double oppression, both as workers but also in the home. So Kollontai and others really had to push back against um, sexism in the working class, but also within the, organ- the socialist organisations to do that. They argued against what we call um, economism, which is essentially the idea that, um, you know, the lot of women and, and other and minorities as well would simply be 
be raised um, along with the rest of the working class as the working class um, fought for its rights and to improve its conditions. They argued instead that you needed to deal with these um, with these issues that women faced um, head on. And for socialists now, you know, fighting specific forms of oppression, you know, uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on, is second nature. But this was a um, a big question at that time, and um, and needed to be argued. And ultimately, if they were successful within the Bolsheviks winning this argument, they went on to set up um, Robotnitsa. A paper specifically for working class women um, and as you said Kolontai uh, herself went on to play a leading role in the 1917 revolution she was a member of the central committee of the Bolsheviks and became the first woman in a, in a national cabinet as minister for welfare I'll go on to talk about what she did after the 1917 revolution um, in helping to roll out um, reforms and make serious inroads to changing the conditions of, of women workers and peasants specifically um, through through the, Z- the Zenopdel, but we can get to that later on. Okay, thanks. Now, many people have a general idea, especially in the West, that the fight against sexism began with the suffragettes, but Kollontai makes the point in the pamphlet that, in fact, Marxists were the first to raise the demands for full political and social equality between women and men. So can you give us that broader context? Yeah, so um, in the introduction to the um, to the pamphlet, Kolontai goes over the numbers of women who are actually already working in factories and industries um, across, across Europe at that time, which is almost half and sometimes um, more than half of the, of the workforce in, in Europe at that time. Of course, in, in quite different conditions uh, to men, sometimes often they were in smaller workplaces, um, they weren't as organised because you know, their, their domestic role also prevented them from being involved in politics to the same extent. But nevertheless, women had been involved in mass struggles and working class organisations for decades before the suffragette movement arose. Um, so women workers were voting alongside male workers in these struggles, in, you know, meetings about strikes and how to go forward with a, with a movement. Uh, they played leading roles in events like the Paris Commune, the, you know, there are very prominent socialist women that, that arose out of that. And at this time, Marxists had also developed quite a sophisticated analysis of, um, of sexism and where it arose from. So they didn't see it as being um, something innate. They saw it as something arising historically. This started out um, largely with a, a pamphlet by Engels, that's uh, Frederick Engels, uh, who traced the oppression of women back to the advent of class society and saw women's oppression arising alongside the advent of uh, private property and the state and saw women's oppression as being rooted in, in the nuclear family, which continues to be, a, you know, a, a cent- play a central role under, under capitalism in which women do the, you know, the vast majority of unpaid labour in the home, you know, taking care of people's needs, raising the next generation of workers at no cost to bosses or the state. Um, and that was seen as being essential to the running of capitalism as it still is today. Socialists began to see that for women to be liberated, the family itself would have to be overthrown with capitalism. But they also saw that women were becoming a vital part of the workforce and therefore part of the working class movement. A German socialist, Clara Zetkin, said in 1896 that only in conjunction with proletarian women will socialism be victorious. 
So there was a recognition quite early on of the role, the the absolutely crucial role of women in in fighting for the rights of the masses of people in in general. Socialists across Europe had also been fighting for the expansion of voting rights for some time, but they also wanted to expand voting rights to all working-class people. In most places, it was only men who owned property who could vote. Working-class men couldn't vote either for the most part. And in terms of the the suffragettes, um, they were largely fighting for property women for to be able to um, to vote and you see this play out uh, probably more sharply in, in England where there was a, a split um, between Sylvia Pankhurst who went on to fight for working uh, for working class people in general to have the vote she fought alongside uh, working class men and women to expand the vote whereas uh, the leader of the suffragettes Aline Pankhurst actually withdrew the uh, the demand for women to be extended the vote in order to uh, support the, fir- the efforts of the First World War. And she actually went over to Russia late in the years of the war to speak to women there to argue that they should be supporting the war instead of fighting for the right to vote. And so I think even in even around the question of, um, of suffrage, you see those two sort of opposing camps of, of women and where women's interests lay in terms of their class position and they actually were coming to be in contradiction with each other. Well that very much leads me into my next question because in the opening section of the pamphlet Kollontai critiques the feminists of the period for wanting to assist essentially that all women are sisters. Now you've you've t- given us a glimpse of the argument against that but what was Kollontai arguing herself? Yeah, this is actually a real focus of the of the pamphlet. It's really an argument against the bourgeois feminism that was emerging at that time, and the idea that there can be said to be a sister a sisterhood of all women, regardless of class. And that's what the feminists of the time were arguing that it was that it that it was actually women against men uh, in their in their entirety, regardless of class. But Kollontai argued that women were divided into two camps along the lines of class, and that meant that they actually had a distinct set of interests as a result, and sometimes actually in uh, in contradiction with each other. Um, so the the aims of the bourgeois feminists were to fight to enter uh, professional roles, to be able to hold degrees, and and so on. And Kollontai says. In no way do they attack the basis of this society. They fight for prerogatives for themselves without challenging existing, the existing prerogatives and privileges. Their view of things flows inevitably from their class position. So oftentimes they were uh, arguing for women to be able to hold uh, positions of being a boss in a workplace, to be able to run businesses and and to be able to, to own property. And of course, the issues that faced working class women were quite different um, at that that time and they continue to be different today. The problems that were faced by working class women at that time were, you know, they were working in in factories, there were issues of of wages, they earned significantly less than men, there were issues of childcare, what they would do with their children while they were working, they fought for things like having breastfeeding breaks during work, to be able to have creches at work, and also the ability to strike in general, and against the oppression of the states, of the Tsarist state against those strikes, which is... Uh, again, something we're still fighting for in Australia is we don't, you know, we don't have the right to strike. We've seen 
women, primarily women in, in childcare in particular, wanting to go on strike and not being able to because of the anti-strike laws we face. Is that something that ruling class women would, would fight for? That's, that's, that is another question. Um, you know, if she's a, if she's a boss of a, of a childcare centre, she's unlikely to be wanting to argue for those, for those kinds of rights. And there's another quote that I think is quite, uh, quite telling. So she says, each new concession won by the bourgeois woman would get her, give her yet another weapon for the exploitation of her younger sister and would go on increasing the division between the women of the two opposite social camps. Their interests would be more sharply in conflict, their aspirations more obviously in contradiction. And you can see how that has happened, really, when you do have women, clearly not as many women as men, but... Uh, some, nonetheless, in positions of considerable power as as CEOs, um, cutting the pay of their of their women workers, and I think those those contradictions that she predicted have really have really borne out. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't hurt any less uh, to have your pay or hours cut by a female boss than it does. Um, coming from a male boss and I can say that from personal experience but I think it's also extraordinary how familiar her arguments are to us today in terms of even the way that uh, what was once called International Working Women's Day now International Women's Day has been largely co-opted by this kind of shiny corporate feminism that talks about the need for more uh, quote-unquote girl bosses needing to get women into positions of power and that that's the way that we're going to solve the, the problems of, of sexism. While, of course, um, you know, a lot of women continue to be underpaid, um, working in casual and part-time roles, we're facing a lot of the same problems, really. Certainly the political questions are still very relevant, even though quite a lot of the, the economic and material conditions have changed. There are a lot of familiar issues there. Well, you you touched earlier on the question of the responsibilities on on women around childcare and the family. One thing that Collantyre wrote was, and I quote, the struggle for political rights, for the right to receive doctorates and other academic degrees, and for equal pay for equal work, is not the full sum of the fight for equality. To become really free, woman has to throw off the heavy chains of the current forms of the family which are outmoded and oppressive. So what did she mean by this and how can women achieve such a name? It has to be said as well that Kolontai wasn't against a lot of the legal equalities that feminists were fighting for at the time. And there was some crossover. There were middle-class women who were being brought around to the idea that there was a need to fight for working class women's rights as well and working class issues. So there was a there was an argument around that at the time. And there are certainly crossovers in terms of legal rights. I guess one of the one of the obvious ones that later became more prominent is the question of the legality of abortion, which we now have to an extent, uh, decriminalisation, but there's still questions of access to abortion, whether it's affordable, those sorts of things. Kolontai and socialist women of the time were concerned with the material conditions that kept women in this oppressed position. Essentially, that they were dependent on their husbands, they were dependent on, on the family and the family unit to 
to actually be able to, to raise their children. They were paid far less than their than their male counterparts. You know, the whole system of, um, of capitalism depended on their oppression. And so to only have equal legal rights within that framework of capitalist exploitation and oppression could only really go so far. If you're still being paid a meagre wage and there is no welfare state to uh, support you if your husband dies or your husband leaves you or whatever. There's no, there is no freedom in that. And so Kollontai argued that women workers had the same interests as their, um, as their working working class male comrades in that they needed to overthrow the entire system of, of capitalism to achieve full liberation for themselves, for their children and for um, people of, of all genders. For socialists, this means the socialisation or the taking of responsibility that women hold in the domestic sphere for things like childcare, laundry, cleaning, all of the rest of it, actually making those private responsibilities public and social responsibilities and that that was the only way that you could actually overthrow the, the family essentially. But that's not to say that we can't make gains for women within the, bound, the bounds of capitalism. You know, we, we do fight for those things in the, in the here and now. And so I think that that's why, as well as legal equality and legal rights, we have to fight for things like better public services, a better health system, a better publication, public education system, free childcare, proper livable welfare, because all of these things matter to the lives of women and they're not at all separate to the issue of women's rights. And so, you know, when we see things like cuts to disability care services, to aged care services, a lot of that, none of that work goes away. It's simply absorbed into the family. And when we fight for things like childcare, that means that women are able to go to work if they if they choose to, um, as well as, you know, fighting for things like uh, equal wages, you know, the, the value of the... Of, of, of feminized industries like nursing, teaching, things like that. And we have seen, thankfully, um, serious struggles emerging around around that. Um, but I think that we, and, and Kollontai certainly argued that the struggle for women's rights couldn't just happen on a legal level. It needed to be a mass movement of, of working class people to also try to win over a section of the middle class to fight for the rights of ordinary women as, as a whole, alongside the rest of the working class. Now, we live in a world today that's riven by sexism. I mean, just think of the treatment of Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, for example. And so it's easy to say, and it's frequently said, that the blame for that sexism belongs with men. But Kollontai challenges that argument in the pamphlet, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. This is a quite a key part of her pamphlet. So she says, the woman and her male comrade are enslaved by the same social conditions, the same hated chains of capitalism oppress their will and deprive them of the joys and charms of life. So this isn't to say that women don't face specific issues as we've already gone over, but she said that their interests were actually one and the same in terms of fighting the exploitation that is such a central part of capitalism and that men and women and children at that time entered into these awful workplaces and they had an interest in actually fighting alongside each other to change those conditions. 
and that to separate men from women in those circumstances made no sense for advancing the interests of of working class women. And I think that that still stands today and it has long been a question around fighting women's oppression. Um, You know, this idea that women need to organise and fight separately from men because men benefit from sexism and or are naturally sexist and can't be relied upon to fight sexism. But if you look at the massive struggles of the past and the greatest gains that have been made for women, they have largely been on the basis of, of united action um, between genders. And so that's that's the case from in 1905 when it was actually women who, who kicked off the revolution as they did again in 1917 fighting for things like equal wages. They struck alongside men to win those sorts of things. But that happened again. Even in Australia, you have uh, united strike action for equal pay for, for women in industries like the uh, the insurance industry in the 1970s. There were also mass mobilisations for women to have the right to abortion and divorce and, and mass mobilisations for welfare payments to be available for single mothers. Those were things that people fought for together. To give a more recent example, uh, women and men went on strike together at Chemist Warehouse in Victoria, and one of their main demands was to stop managers from sexually harassing women workers. That was men and women fighting together. And I think it needs to be said as well that a lot of the things that we fight for as women actually benefit men as well. So things like free childcare, public services and so on they help men as well. And the lower pay of women is also of no benefit to men. In the workplace, it can have the effect of dragging down wages overall. And it also means that if a woman is earning less money than she should be, then her male partner needs to work longer hours to make it up. So the idea, when you think about it in those terms, in those material terms, that working class men have an interest in keeping women oppressed, keeping their wages low and so forth, it falls apart in my mind, actually. But there is, you know, we do need to fight sexist ideas in the workplace and we do do that as socialists. And that is something that Polantai and her comrades had to do quite fiercely back then. And I think also it's worth remembering who Brittany Higgins' boss was. It was Linda Reynolds, a woman. She, after Higgins came out and said that she had been raped in Reynolds' office, Reynolds then called her a lying cow in front of her other staff. So it's very clear that women themselves can also hold sexist ideas that need to be broken down and certainly that female bosses cannot be relied upon just as male bosses can't be relied upon in the fight for women's rights. Kollontai is known as an advocate of free love. Many, of course, the right of women to have whatever personal sexual relationships as they see fit. Yet in the pamphlet, she's quite scathing of bourgeois women who advocate so-called daring to love, but ignore the reality that pregnancy and being a single parent simply heaps more pressure on women's shoulders. So how does Kollontai see genuine sexual freedom coming about? Yeah, Alexandra Kollontai wrote quite often about the way that capitalism led to a distortion of genuine human connection. Uh, She said only a system based on the principles of equality and freedom and without material deprivation could give rise to the kind of healthy relationships that 
and free love relationships that feminists were talking about at the time. She actually wrote short stories about the changing lives of women after the 1917 revolution, some of them good, some of them quite cheesy, um, about women being in enriching, fulfilling relationships, choosing to end bad relationships or choosing to not be in one at all. So in many ways, she was all about free love. She recognised how oppressive marriage and the nuclear family could be, you know, the horrors that go on within nuclear families. Um, but she also didn't see marriage in the same way that feminists did at the time as simply a contractual arrangement um, that actually material conditions forced women to rely on their husbands for income and for support. And she posed the question that, you know, having the right to divorce is all well and good, but what if you're left alone with your children? This, this is particularly acute in a situation in Tsarist Russia where there was no welfare state. So if your husband left you or if you decided you wanted to leave your husband, whether he was violent or not, you would be left alone with your children with no support whatsoever or only support only the support of your own meagre wage. And so she made the argument that you can't separate the idea of relationships and of love from the material conditions in which we in which we live. So she said, only when women are relieved of all those material burdens which at the present time create a dual dependence on capital and on the husband can the principle of free love be implemented without bringing new grief for women in its wake. She also talked about the question of ideology and the way that humans, the kind of humans and psychology that is created by capitalism. You know, she saw that ideology in the family and the atomization of individuals in capitalist society made genuine free love virtually impossible. You know, ideas of ownership, fear of loneliness, they're all still things that attach us to monogamy and the family arising out of the material needs or the material basis of the family's existence. So she says that basically the moral and sexual norms and the whole psychology of mankind would have to undergo a thorough evolution so she, she says, and I think these, these are um, quite beautiful lines that are, that are worth quoting. What about the jealousy that eats into even the best human souls and that deeply rooted sense of property that demands the possession not only of the body but also the soul of another and the inability to have the proper respect for the individuality of another? So essentially I think she means that in a society that doesn't allow for the flourishing of individuals because we're locked into these you know, horrendously long work hours, women are forced to carry out all this domestic drudgery, men are also exhausted after long hours at work, we're alienated at work, alienated from ourselves and our sexuality. Under those circumstances, it isn't really possible to have the kind of unhindered free love that they were talking about, but that's not to say that she wasn't an advocate advocate of it in, in the long run, but she she saw that we had to have a you know a thorough radical transformation of society in order to achieve those kinds of genuine human connections and relationships. So Colantai was arguing that real freedom for women could only be achieved when the state took on as a collective the individual burdens of child rearing, cleaning and cooking that women faced, and of course continue to face. Now, as we've mentioned, she was the Commissar or Minister for Welfare in the first Lenin government. What kind of steps did she take towards making that a reality? Yeah, so some of the first decrees by the new workers' state that she was involved in were to give women full equal rights with men, 
So for the first time in their lives, they had the right to divorce, to abortion, paid maternity leave, equal pay and equal voting rights. Now, in 1917, that's an incredibly uh, novel thing in the world. We still don't even have a lot of those things around the world today. But the, the Bolsheviks in Kontai realised that having the same rights on paper wasn't enough. The material conditions of women had to be radically changed for them to be able to take advantage of the rights. So this meant they had to be liberated from the domestic work that they had been enslaved to, uh, work that had been di- done privately in the home, rearing children, cooking, cleaning and so on, would have to be socialised. So the private responsibility of mothers and wives would become a public responsibility. So to give some concrete examples of what they tried to of what they did, they established things like public kitchens and dining halls, public laundries and nurseries that could be used freely by all women. They fed people communally, so they had these big communal kitchens where people could go to eat rather than having to rely on women cooking in the home. Uh, communal houses were established with central nurseries and lawser- and sorry and laundries. And they also catered for single people, so you didn't need to be in a family. And some of these buildings actually still stand in the former Soviet Union in Russia. And she said, Kolontai said that the separation of kitchen from marriage is a reform no less important than the separation of church and state in the history of woman. But they also found it was no simple task to throw off all the backwards ideas of the old society that they needed to go and undergo a, you know, a, thorough, um, a thorough shake-up as well. So, you know, it, it was the case that many women still faced enormous economic hardship that limited their ability to be involved in politics. And actually, most women across Russia were still illiterate. Kolontai went about setting up what's called the Zenotdel. It was basically uh, an organisation that travelled to the furthest reaches of Russia to bring women onto, onto the side of the revolution, but also give them, teach them literacy, teach them, teach them skills so that they could actually genuinely engage in the political process. Uh, and this was an enormous operation. You know, they sent people out on trains to Siberia, to the borderlands. Um, sometimes women would go into... Uh, Muslim communities, they would don the veil so that they could speak freely with other with other women there. And this was also something that the, that the Bolsheviks had been won over to, as I said. So in 1919, Lenin declared that the emancipation of working women is a matter for the working women themselves. So in other words, they have to be active in their own liberation. It's not just something that representatives should do for them. And in 1918, the first all-Russian Congress of Working Women was held. There were a thousand delegates from all over the country, all democratically elected from their areas to discuss the the most minute problems of women's lives. And the aim of the Congress was to win women's support for the revolution, for Soviet power, uh, to involve women in the party, in governments, in working class organisations, to combat domestic slavery and the double standards of morality, to establish communal living accommodation, to protect women's labour and maternity, all sorts of things uh, were on the list for that um, for that conference. To go back to the Zenotdel as well, they, they actually set up over 125,000 literacy schools for women and they, they had delegate bodies delegate bodies that rotated every two or three months um, and their elections were actually modelled on the Soviets that arose in the workplaces, um, in workplaces around Russia during 1917. And local women were elected to regional committees, they organised communal institutions, party work, 
people's courts and, and wall, wall work and then reported back to their local area. So there really was a massive ferment of um, encouraging women to be genuinely involved in the political process and educating them so that they could actually do that in a really active way. But it also has to be said that, you know, as we know, the with the failure of the revolution to spread to the rest of industrialised Europe, the Russian revolution became increasingly isolated. And so as civil war raged throughout Russia, productivity plummeted, poverty and starvation begin to grip Russia in the 1920s. The new workers' state was unable to fund and support things like public kitchens, nurseries and laundries. So the the material realities really clashed with the um, with the ideals of the revolution ultimately. And so a lot of the initial gains that were made for women in in Russia were wound back um, by virtue of them of the the new workers state simply not being able to maintain them um, in the same way that the democratic institutions that arose out of the Russian Revolution also began to um, break down under the conditions of civil war and material deprivation. Uh, because of this poverty, the bulk of reproductive labor continued to fall to women. And there were also particular there was also particular resistance by peasant households to changes in their family structures because they worked as a family union. Now, we have to remember that at this time, the majority of Russia was still peasants, not actually um, part of the working class that was concentrated in the cities. And so by, by 1928, you actually have really the completion of the counter-revolution that was mounted by the bureaucracy of the Communist Party led by Joseph Stalin. The leaders of the revolution were sidelined or murdered uh, you know eventually Trotsky is um, is exiled from the country and the best working class fighters had been killed in, in battle and I think you can say that the progress of the counter-revolution could really be measured in the lives of women so under Stalin the role of mothers was again glorified uh, so the role of mothers as opposed to women as um, as workers and being active members of society uh, was no longer, and they promoted the role of women as being primarily mothers. Again, abortion was recriminalised, um, and after all of the work that was done <clears throat> by the Zenobdel amongst Muslim women in the Russian borderlands, uh, Stalin's bureaucrats actually carried out forced unveilings of Muslim women, um, and the Zenobdel itself was dissolved in, in 1930. And unfortunately, Alexandra Kontai, while she was you know, probably the fiercest fighter for women in Russia in that time in, in the early 1900s and all through the revolution. She was also part of the, the left opposition in the early 1920s. She was an ally of Trotsky. She, she fought very hard to push back the counter-revolution and the bureaucracy that was headed by Stalin. But she was actually kind of... There were attempts to bring her into that bureaucracy and she unfortunately had to oversee some of the rolling back of the fight of the rights that she had fought tooth and nail for um, all her life and she was eventually also sidelined she was sent off to a to a post in, in Norway as a diplomat to essentially get her out of the way because she was one of the remaining um, original leaders of the of the Russian Revolution so the the tragedy of the counter-revolution in Russia is an immense tragedy for for women in general but I think you know, I think all of the arguments that Kollontai made, her theories, are still incredibly valuable to us today, and particularly um, this 
piece of this piece of writing. Well, really, I wanted to finish on that note because we're a little over a hundred years on from the revolution, a hundred and thirteen years on from when this pamphlet was published. And by the way, I'll include a link to the pamphlet in the podcast description so people can enjoy it and read it for themselves. A lot has changed. For instance, in the context of the debates about so-called free love, there's now access for most women, at least in the industrialised world, to contraception. We now have communal kitchens everywhere, wherever we look. They're called McDonald's and Nando's and all the rest of it. They're run for private profit, but we have the ability now to, to feed people outside of the family home. But there are so many things that haven't changed, and you can measure that in the horrific toll of domestic violence or in the continuing uh, wage gap between men and women. So in that context, to sum up, what lessons would you draw from Colin Ty's writings today? Oh, I think there are so many. <laughs> yeah, I think the those questions of the material conditions that face working class women, uh, as opposed to ruling class and even middle class women are still so pertinent today. You know, it is it is true that we do have things like cheap Maccas that you can buy, but, you know, that's uh, cheap food is often, you know, the, the least nutritious food a lot of the time. And it's still the case that women do the majority of unpaid labour in the home. I think we saw this most acutely during the lockdown periods that have happened over the last couple of years. Women having to take on... Un- inhuman amount of labor to absorb the basic things that were provided by the state so things like public education you know the care of elderly relatives of um, relatives with disabilities so much of that work fell to women and we heard about women in particular but parents in general absolutely tearing their hair out um, trying to balance working and looking after the needs of their family, their young children in particular, at the, at the same time. But I think that that's just a sharpening of what is really the case in, in everyday life under capitalism. It's still the case that we work very long hours. Women earn less than men. Um, since the early 1980s, we have still hovered around a wage gap of between 14 to 17%. Um, and that is primarily between industries, so not within industries. It's you know it's the fact that lower paid industries are dominated by by women, and those women still don't have the right to strike to have livable pay. And I think all of the arguments that she makes against um, against bourgeois women, uh, sorry, against bourgeois feminism, arguing for women to you know to be able to be in positions of leadership, uh, and that that is you know, the be-all and end-all of the women's struggle remain today. You know, we've we've seen the role that many women leaders have played in actually making the lives of ordinary women worse. You know, Julia Gillard is a good example, I think. <laughs> you know, on the same day that she delivered her infamous misogyny speech, she, she cut payments to single mothers in Australia, which had a devastating effect on some of the most vulnerable women in our community. And I think all of her questions, her, the arguments that she makes about free love remain. You know, it's a, 
once again, it's a big issue, um, you know, this, this idea that we should be able to conduct our relationships in the ways that we choose, and that's absolutely something that that socialists get behind. You know, we want uh, there to, you know, people to be able to choose the kinds of relationships they have, choose, you know, whether to marry or not to marry uh, the person they love, regardless of their gender. But we have to recognise that we're still massively constrained by the material realities of our lives and that um, that free love and genuine connection um, won't really be possible on a mass scale until we um, overthrow the system that oppresses us all, keeps us alienated from one another, keeps us in competition with one another. And that's the fight that... Uh, Men, women, people of all genders need to fight together, you know, to ultimately overturn the system and replace it with one that is democratically controlled by workers and ordinary people. Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Caitlin. A pleasure.